Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Stephanie, and I will be your conference operator today. At this time, I would like to welcome everyone to the Sun Life Financial Q3 2020 Financial Results Conference Call. All lines have been placed on mute to prevent any background noise. After the speaker's remarks, there will be a question and answer session. The host of the call will be Lee Chalmers, Senior Vice President, Head of Investor Relations and Capital Management. Please go ahead, Ms. Chalmers. Thank you, Stephanie, and good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sun Life Financial's earnings conference call for the third quarter of 2020. Our earnings release and slides for today's call are available on the Investor Relations section of our website at sunlife.com. We will begin today's presentation with an overview of our third quarter results by Dean Connor, President and Chief Executive Officer of Sun Life Financial. Following Dean's remarks, Kevin Strain, Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer, will present the financial results for the quarter. After the prepared remarks, we will move to the question and answer portion of the call. Other members of management will also be available to answer your questions on today's call. Turning to slide two, I draw your attention to the cautionary language regarding the use of forward-looking statements and non-IFRS financial measures, which form part of today's remarks. As noted in the slides, forward-looking statements may be rendered inaccurate by subsequent events. And with that, I'll now turn things over to Dean. Thanks, Lee, and good morning, everyone. As the world continues to navigate through the challenges of this pandemic, I want to express my deepest gratitude to our employees and advisors who are there for each other and are there for our clients. So far this year, we have delivered more than $140 million in claims paid to the families of clients who have succumbed to COVID-19 and paid millions more in pandemic-related health claims. We've delivered strong relative investment performance for clients, and our clients' client experience survey scores have increased again for the fourth consecutive year, in part due to our outreach and response on COVID-19. It's times like these that remind us why we are in business and underscore the importance of what we do for clients. Turning to slide four, Q3 was a strong quarter. Reported net income was $750 million, up 10% over the prior year, primarily from more favorable market-related impacts, partially offset by reserve strengthening from assumption changes and management actions. Underlying net income of $842 million, grew 4% over the third quarter of last year, and underlying earnings per share grew 5% over the same period. Assets under management grew 12% to just under $1.2 trillion. We generated a strong underlying return on equity of 15.1% for the quarter. The LICAT ratio at SLF is 144%, a level well in excess of the supervisory minimum. Our capital and cash positions remain healthy, and along with a low leverage ratio of 21.5%, provide flexibility and opportunities for capital deployment. On October 21st, we announced our intention to acquire a majority stake in Crescent Capital Group, 
a global alternative credit investment manager, primarily focused on below investment grade credit. Crescent is headquartered in Los Angeles with offices in New York, Boston, and London. The team has a long and impressive track record with approximately 38 billion Canadian in AUM. We look forward to welcoming Crescent to SLC and to the broader Sun Life family with the transaction closes in the coming months. Insurance sales for the quarter were 681 million, broadly in line with prior year, demonstrating the benefit of our investments in digital capabilities. Well before the pandemic, we made it a priority to invest in digital data and analytics with the goal of enhancing the client experience and putting our clients at the center of everything we do, and that has accelerated over the past year. For example, in the U.S., 100% of workplace benefits enrollments we manage on behalf of our group clients were done virtually since mid-March of this year, and that's up from only 19% virtual during the same period last year. We also partnered with human resources and benefits admin providers to connect directly to their digital platforms, simplifying benefits for our clients and providing real-time insurance decisions. In Canada, 91% of our retail insurance applications were processed digitally in the quarter. This was helped by the introduction of the Sunlife eApp excuse me, eApp tool we rolled out to brokers in our third-party channel at the end of the second quarter. In the Philippines, we rolled out a tool called Remote Online Medical Exams, Rome, where accredited health professionals perform online medical exams for, for prospective clients, which is a first in this market. In Vietnam, we were one of the first insurers to introduce non-face-to-face sales, launching our new digital solution, SunFast. This digital platform enables advisors to meet their clients virtually and conduct the needs analysis, illustration, sale, and fulfillment processes digitally, resulting in a great experience for clients. We also delivered another strong quarter in wealth and asset management, growing sales 28% over the prior year. And that includes two major wins in our group retirement services in Canada, underscoring our position as the leading provider in this space. In Defined Benefit Solutions, our pension risk transfer business, we completed a $1.1 billion payout annuity sale, which was the largest single-day annuity transaction by an insurer in Canada. We also assumed responsibility for the administration of one of the country's largest defined contribution plans, McGill University, with $1.7 billion of assets. Sun Life Global Investments, our Canadian wealth management firm, delivered 20% growth in retail net flows over the prior year. A few weeks ago, we celebrated SLGI's 10th anniversary. It's a business we started shortly after the global financial crisis to help Canadians build lifetime financial security. And at the end of Q3, SLGI had grown to nearly $31 billion in assets under management, and it represents a growing source of earnings for Sun Life Canada. The value of new business, which covers our insurance and wealth businesses, excluding asset management, was up 4%, driven mainly by higher sales volumes aided by Canadian group retirement services. At MFS, we once again ended the quarter with net inflows, which totaled U.S. $4.5 billion, driven by positive flows from U.S. retail and non-U.S. retail distribution channels. MFS continues to deliver strong investment performance 
with 86%, 89%, and 84% of U.S. retail assets ranked in the top half of their LIPR categories over 10, 5, and 3-year periods, respectively. At SLC Management, we completed the acquisition of the majority stake in Infrared Capital Partners in the quarter, a global infrastructure and real estate investment manager. Net sales in SLC Management were $851 million, an improvement from net outflows last quarter. With the expected close of Crescent Capital, we will have a compelling mix of solutions for clients, including real estate, infrastructure equity, investment-grade fixed income, and now alternative credit. We started SLC management six years ago and have grown the business at a relatively fast clip to $106 billion of AUM today, $145 billion pro forma Crescent, and a growing contributor to SLC and to Sun Life. So to conclude, we delivered a strong third quarter on many fronts with notable achievements across all four pillars. Looking ahead, the course and duration of the pandemic is, of course, uncertain. But what's not uncertain is that we are well positioned to manage risk and grow the business. We will use this time to continue to accelerate everything digital and continue to obsess about looking after our clients. It's equally important that we look after each other. As we've said before, mental health has been a growing problem in society, and the pandemic has only made it more challenging. So as employers, we all need to help our people on this front. And as a financial institution, we need to do our very best to help our clients. And with that, I will now turn the call over to Kevin Strain, who will take us through the results. Thanks, Dean, and good morning, everyone. Turning to slide six, Sun Life continued to perform well during COVID-19, which is a testament to our strategy to de-risk the business and to invest in technology, coupled with our track record of strong execution. We had strong financial results for the quarter, including for earnings, ROE, top-line growth, and capital. Our reported EPS for Q3 was $1.28, up 11% over last year, and our reported net income for Q3 was $750 million. Reported earnings were driven by strong underlying net income and and favorable market-related impacts, partially offset by unfavorable assumption changes and management actions. Market-related impacts were predominantly driven by interest rates and equity market growth, partially offset by the narrowing of credit spreads and changes in the fair value of investment properties, mostly from office and retail property valuations. Underlying EPS of $1.44 increased 5% over a strong Q3 in 2019, and underlying net income in the third quarter was $842 million, driven by strong results across all four business groups. Growth in expected profit and new business gains, positive claims experience, and positive investment experience were partially offset by lower earnings on surplus income and corporate results, as the prior year results also benefited by $78 million from the tax resolution of tax matters that did not reoccur this year including $58 million in corporate and $20 million in Canada. We had net positive claims-related experience in the quarter. After-tax morbidity was a favorable $65 million, driven by favorable results in our Canadian and U.S. group benefits businesses. Mortality after-tax was a negative $19 million, predominantly from our U.S. group business related to COVID-19 claims. We had positive investment-related experience. Investing activity gains were $28 million after-tax, Credit experience in the quarter was a negative $2 million, primarily driven by downgrades, offset by the release of our best estimate reserve. 
Reported ROE for the quarter was 13.5%, while underlying ROE was 15.1%, above our medium-term objective of 12-14%. to 14%. Assets under management increased by $123 billion to almost $1.2 trillion, driven by favorable market movements, net inflows, the impacts of currency, and an increase of $16 billion in AUM following the closing of the Infrared acquisition on July 1st. We continue to have a strong capital position with LICAT ratios of 127% at SLA and 144% at SLF. Sun Life ended the quarter with $2.4 billion of cash at the holding company and a financial leverage ratio of 21.5%. Our strong capital position continues to provide us with good financial flexibility. On October the 1st, we issued $750 million of subordinated debt which brings our pro forma leverage ratio to 23.5% and pro forma cash at the holding company to $3.2 billion. Book value per share increased by 7% over the prior year to $38.17, reflecting reported net income, foreign currency translation in accumulated other comprehensive income, and net unrealized AFS gain, partially offset by dividends on common shares. Slide 7 shows business group performance on both a reported and underlying net income basis. For the quarter, Canada's reported net income of $387 million increased 74% compared to the third quarter of 2019, driven by underlying net income, market-related impacts, and favorable ACMA in the quarter. Underlying net income was $293 million, an increase of 9% from improvements in group benefits and strong expected profit growth. The favorable results in group benefits were driven by lower disability claim volumes as well as pricing actions we have taken to address increases in long-term disability claims. <clears throat> the U.S. had a net loss for the quarter for reported net income of $113 million, which was an improvement over the same period last year, reflecting less unfavorable assumption changes and improved market-related impacts. Underlying net income in the U.S. was in line with the prior year as favorable morbidity experience and stop-loss business growth and higher investing activity were offset by unfavorable mortality in the group benefits business and unfavorable expense experience and less favorable credit experience. Reported that income in our asset management business increased by 14% to $251 million, reflecting lower acquisition and integration costs, offset by unfavorable fair value adjustments on MFS share-based payment awards, reflecting MFS's growth in AUM. Underlying net income increased by 17% to $294 million, driven by higher average net assets at MFS and higher income at SLC management, partially offset by changes in returns on seed investments as MFS had seen seed gains in the prior year, which did not repeat this year, and SLC had seed losses in the third quarter related to certain real estate investments. In Asia, we saw our highest underlying net income ever in the third quarter. Reported net income increased by $66 million to $236 million compared to the same period in 2019, mostly driven by favorable ACMA. Underlying net income increased to $164 million on lower new business strain, primarily in international hubs, favorable expense experience and business growth, partially offset by less favorable credit experience. Our corporate segment, which includes the UK business, reported a net loss of $11 million for the quarter, down from reported net income of $253 million in Q3 2019. 2019 reported net income benefited from favorable ACMA in the UK. 
On an underlying basis, the corporate segment had a net loss of $45 million in the quarter compared to underlying net income of $17 million in the same period in 2019. The prior year included the favorable impact from the resolution of tax matters, which was not repeated this year. Other drivers of the year-over-year change included favorable credit experience in the UK, partially offset by improved expense experience in corporate support. Slide 8 provides an overview of the source of earnings. Against a challenging environment, expected profit grew by 13% year-over-year with 13% growth in Canada, 15% in the US, and 17% in asset management. Excluding asset management and the impact of currency, expected profit grew by 8%. In Asia, expected profit grew by 4% as growth in the business of 10% was partially offset by higher planned regional office expenses. We had new business gains of $8 million during the quarter compared to strain of $22 million in the prior period. These gains were driven by repricing actions in Canada and higher sales and repricing in our international hubs business in Asia. Experience losses in the quarter were $13 million, largely driven by unfavorable net market-related impacts from the impact of narrowing credit spreads and lower appraisals of investment properties with partial offsets from higher equity markets and interest rates. Other experience items in the quarter included favorable morbidity experience and investing activity gains, partially offset by unfavorable mortality experience in U.S. group benefits, predominantly from COVID-19-related claims, and unfavorable expense and other experience. During the quarter, we undertook our annual review of Assumption Changes in Management Actions, or ACMA, which amounted to a pre-tax loss of $91 million, or $53 million after tax. ACMA in Q3 included negative updates to mortality assumptions and lapse and other policyholder behavior reserves strengthening, predominantly in the U.S. and in enforced management. This was partially offset by favorable morbidity updates in Canada and the U.K., as well as favorable investment-related assumption updates and other model enhancements. Other in our source of earnings, which amounted to a loss of $60 million, includes the fair value adjustment of MFS share-based payment awards, acquisition and integration costs, and the impact of hedges in SLF Canada that do not qualify for hedge accounting. Earnings on surplus declined year over year due to lower investment income and lower AFS gains. With the addition of new investment capabilities at SLC, we expect there will be opportunities to enhance yields over time in surplus. Our effective tax rate on reported net income was 10.3%, reflecting tax-exempt investment income. On an, underlying basis, net income, on an underlying net income basis, the effective tax rate was 17.5% in line with our expected range of 15% to 20%. Slide 9 shows the sales results by business group, which continue to show resilience despite restrictions related to COVID-19. The quarter saw a continued push towards digital sales, which Dean discussed earlier, and the reopening in some markets of more traditional face-to-face sales for example, in Hong Kong, China, Vietnam, and Malaysia. Total company insurance sales were broadly in line with the third quarter of 2019. Canada insurance sales decreased by 28% as a result of lower sales and group benefits from lower cases coming to market. On a constant currency basis, U.S. insurance sales increased by 24%, driven by higher sales in all lines of business as our technology solutions are gaining traction with employers. Asia insurance sales were in line on a constant currency basis, with the largest increases being in international hubs, offset by decreases in the Philippines compared to the prior year. While the Philippines remained in lockdown for much of the quarter, 
Sales more than doubled compared to Q2 as advisors pivoted to digital tools. Total company wealth sales increased by $11.5 billion, or 28%. Wealth sales in Canada increased by 65%, driven by higher large-case sales in both defined benefits and defined contribution plans. Asia wealth sales increased by 7% on a constant currency basis, driven by fixed income sales in India, partially offset by lower wealth sales in the Philippines. Gross sales in our asset management businesses increased by 24% on a constant currency basis, largely from higher mutual and managed fund sales in MFS, partially offset by lower sales in SLC management. MFS saw positive flows of U.S. dollar $4.5 billion this quarter, driven by the seventh consecutive quarter of positive retail flows. Institutional flows were negative in the quarter, driven by client rebalancing. Value of new business in the quarter was $261 million, an increase of 4% compared to the same period in 2019, mainly driven by volumes, in particular from the Canada Group retirement sales. Turning to slide 10, year-to-date expenses were up 3% on a constant currency basis, while controllable expenses increased by a modest 1% as we continue to drive expense discipline across our businesses. We also benefited from lower discretionary spend like travel and conference-related costs due to COVID-19, while continuing to make investments in digital initiatives across the company. As Dean mentioned, on October 21st, we announced our intention to acquire a majority stake in Crescent Capital Group, which we expect to close by the end of the year. With the addition of Crescent, SLC Management now has a full suite of alternative investment offerings for our clients across fixed income, real estate, infrastructure equity, and alternative credit. To that end, we're pleased to announce that we'll be holding a virtual SLC Management Investor Day on March 18, 2021, where Steve Peacher and his leadership team will walk through our investment capabilities our strategy in the alternative space, and our aspirations for this business. In summary, we had a strong quarter with solid results across each of our businesses. We continue to focus on making investments in our businesses to strengthen digital capabilities, helping us connect with clients and advisors globally. We're also focused on our M&A pipeline, all the while maintaining a strong capital position. With that, I'll turn the call back to Lee for the Q&A portion of the call. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, to help ensure that all participants have an opportunity to ask questions on today's call, I ask each of you to please limit yourselves to one or two questions and then to requeue with any additional questions. And with that, I'll now ask Stephanie to please pull the participants for questions. Thank you. As a reminder, in order to ask an audio question, please press star followed by the number one on your telephone keypad. Once again, that is star one to ask a question. And our first question will come from the line of Scott Chan of Canaccord Genuity. Uh, good morning. Um, my question is on MFS. Um, really strong quarter, uh, nice pre-tax operating margin of 40%. Uh, but looking out into 2021, outside of uh, market factors, perhaps just an update on um, industry fee trends and if that is impacting uh, MFS and also on expenses, which seem to be well controlled in the quarter. Uh, just a bit of an update there in terms of um, what you're seeing for next year. Hey, good morning, Thanks, Scott. Scott. It's Mike Roberge. And, uh, yeah, so given the, mar- you know, we've guided over, really over the last number of years around a margin in normal environments in the mid to high 30s. Uh, this quarter was a little higher than that. 
Um, you know, and some of that due to you know, some cost control that we took earlier in the year, given uh, what the market did early. Um, but also, you know, things like travel and entertainment are down given COVID. Um, so some of that is probably not sustainable through the cycle. So we continue to think that mid-30s to high-30s range for the margin is, is what's uh, probably sustainable. In terms of fees, uh, you know, when you look at industry fees, they continue to come down 1% plus per annum. If you look across the industry, we would expect the industry to continue to see that. Um, year on year, really, for, for some period of time. Um, you know, we've been fortunate that we've run fee erosion less than that, and some of that is mixed. So our institutional business has, has been in outflows while our retail business has been solidly in inflows. And so uh, we've been outperforming uh, the industry from a fee perspective. But we would stay with a guidance of anywhere from mid to high 30s through cycle. Okay. Thank you very much. Your next question is from the line of Gabrielle Deshane with National Bank Financial. Uh, good morning. I uh, just want to ask you about the uh, real estate uh, valuation uh, losses. It's the sixth quarter in a row. Uh, we've seen those. Uh, just wondering if um, you can tell me what the uh, you know, what impact that has on on your you know reserve assumptions. Is there a charge that might ensue? And uh, you know maybe some sensitivity. What you know, if you were to reduce your real estate return assumption by 100 basis points or something, is that a big, big number or, or, or not? Thanks, Gabe. I'll, I'll turn the question to Kevin Morrissey on the uh, actual best estimate and the real estate assumption, and then maybe if Randy wants to add any detail on the performance of the, the, the real estate class, he can do that. Yes, thanks for the question, Gabriel. It's, it's Kevin Morrissey. So, yes, we have had a recent trend that has been unfavorable in the real estate returns. The longer term experience has been quite positive. And remember, for the valuation assumptions, this is a, this is a very long term assumption. And so far this year, we've certainly seen some impacts from the pandemic that are being observed in the real estate portfolio. And we're monitoring it longer term. I think it's, it's a little too early to conclude for the longer term assumption, Gabriel, where, where that's going to go. Uh, you know, we still continue to view real estate very favorably from a relative value perspective, especially in this low interest rate um, environment. So in terms of the size, uh, you know, we have disclosed uh, the, uh, the relative sensitivity of our, of our uh, assumptions for real estate. Um, you know, I don't want to speculate on the size of a, a potential change. As I said, you know, our long-term experiences continue to be favorable and we continue to have confidence in our current assumption. Okay. And Gabriel? Yep. Yep, it's uh, Randy Brown. Uh, I'll comment on, on the real estate valuation for the quarter. Um, the, the valuations in the portfolio um, were actually um, okay. They came out slightly positive, actual uh, total rate of return. But as Kevin said, they did uh, underperform uh, longer-term assumptions. Uh, the portfolio is highly diversified. We're very comfortable with it. And um, as Kevin mentioned, we're actually quite favorable on real estate as an asset class in the very low-rate environment. We think the real rate of return available in real estate and other real assets uh, in this environment will be quite attractive, both for us and for others. All right, thanks. My next question is on the group business and uh, another quarter here where uh, claims experience has been positive. Uh, I'm wondering to what extent uh, the recent results have benefited from the government support programs and 
you know, if uh, maybe maybe looked at a different way, does this uh, type of trend, the positive, uh, you know, claims trend, uh, would that compel you to, you know, bake in that, uh, you know, performance into your expected profits next year? That, that gives a, I guess, a, a comment on, on sustainability. David Steen, I'll, I'll ask Shock uh, and then Dan to comment on the first part of your question, and then uh, uh, and then Kevin Morrissey to comment on the second part on expected profit. Thanks. Thanks, Dean. Uh, Gabriel, thank you for the question. Uh, as you say, there is indeed a lot of uncertainty out there. What we saw with claims is a gradual ramp up uh, through the quarter. I would say as we were ending the quarter, the level of activity was pretty well back to uh, the normal levels. Uh, the fact that it gradually increased during the quarter, of course, has benefited for us. Uh, I would say, you know, looking ahead, it's it's tough to predict. Uh, Gabriel, the second wave could be stronger than we think, and it could impact. I would also point out that, you know, the slower claims is um, is favorable when we look at experience. At the same time, you know that we have uh, administrative service only business or ASO as we call it, and one of the things that means is it actually generates lower fees for us because. The fees are off the volume of claims. So it's a bit of a mixed picture. There remains a fair bit of doubt uh, in terms of where we're going, but that's obviously something we're watching closely. I'll turn it to Dan. Thanks, Jacques. Uh, for the morbidity in the U.S. group business, uh, there's a few different factors uh, at play here. Uh, the primary driver of favorable disability, uh, a favorable morbidity experience for us in the quarter was in our stop loss business. And a fair amount of that was actually the emergence of experience from prior periods. So we can't really, you know, relate that to economic factors or, or COVID at this point. Uh, our disability experience was generally in line, uh, with expectations. Uh, so there certainly may be some impact so far of the very strong supports that have been provided to businesses in the U.S., uh, but as Jacques said, it's a little difficult to, to predict how that will emerge uh, going forward. Uh, Kevin? Uh, Gabriel, Kevin Morrissey, could you just clarify your, your question on the, the expected profit impact, please? Well, I guess, I, I guess it uh Jacques and Dan's questions sort of answered it like whenever you see positive uh, experience over an exponential period in group and especially the following year you kind of bake that into your expected process as you know to reflect some stuff that you view as more sustainable but maybe maybe not from the sounds of it yes i think that's right i think that's the right way to think about it gabriel that the expected profit does align with the pricing assumption. So to the extent that we do make updates and changes as part of the, those, those assumptions, they would be reflected in the expected profit in the next year. Um, uh, but it really does align with pricing and pricing changes. Okay. Thank you. Your next question is from the line of Minnie Grauman with Scotiabank. Yeah, hi, good morning. Um, following up on, on the comment that, uh, you know, you talked about uh, the risk of a second wave uh, that's in front of us, I'm wondering if there's any actions you could take uh, sort of proactively to take risk off the table given that uncertainty, and I'm thinking about 
you know, building reserves in particular. You know, we heard from one of your peers yesterday about uh, sort of a little bit more caution, uh, a little more cautious stance um, as they look forward. So I'm just wondering if that's something that's on the table and why or why not uh, would you consider that? Manny, I'll take uh, I'll take the first shot of that, and if uh, if Randy wants to add some things or uh, or others can on on the call, you know, it's uh, if we if we look at COVID nineteen and what's happening, I think the, one of the most important things we're doing is we as we talked about earlier is our pivot to everything digital and building out digital capabilities, and we're seeing really good traction on that. Uh, on the um, on the risk side, you know, we're well aware of the risks on. Um, mortality and morbidity and you've seen the the impact they've had on the results and we continue to to look at that and manage that and as uh, as we think about pricing actions and and mix of business and those types of things and on the invested asset side you know it's um, you're, you're seeing lower and lower yields and as I mentioned earlier you know one of the things that uh, we we can do is is um, with the addition of some really effective asset managers in a low yield environment, we can leverage SLC to drive yield up. And we think that um, if you look at SLC, uh, the timing for adding these capabilities is perfect given the, the, the environment that we're in right now. And you heard Randy talk a little bit about that. So, you know, we continue to run scenarios. We continue to stress test the, the capital. But overall, the business is performing well, and you can see that in the results so far this, this, this year. So I don't think there's anything special we're doing outside of continuing to be good risk managers, thinking about investments and how investments can perform in different scenarios, and then building digital capabilities. And many, it's Dean. I would just add uh, to Kevin's comments, just to build on that, that in, in some ways the most important things we did, we did several years ago, which was to de-risk the asset portfolio. Randy's talked about that before. That set us up nicely coming into this pandemic. Obviously, we didn't know it was going to be a pandemic, but we were looking ahead thinking at some point this credit cycle had to turn for some reason. And, um, you know, in hindsight, I'm glad we, we took those de-risking actions we did. That was the right time to do it. The only other thing I would, it's Kevin, again, the only, I'd add one more thing. The fact that we're geographically diverse means that COVID's having different impacts in different markets at different rates, and that also benefits us. Thank you. Your next question is from the line of Darko Mahalik with RBC Capital Markets. Hi, thank you. Good morning. The first question is for uh, Kevin Strain. You mentioned uh, in Asia that uh, expected profit was impacted by some planned expenditures. Can you maybe highlight how much that was and if that is expected to continue next quarter and into next year? So the, the way that we do our ex – uh, Darko's Kevin, and uh, Leo can add to this, but the, the way that we uh, do our expected profit for – corporate costs like the regional office is we put our planned expenses into the expected profit. And the difference between the 10% return and the 4% uh, for, for the VMB 10% growth versus the 4% relates back to that. In fact, those planned expenses, because of a lot of different things, uh, good management, but uh, uh, COVID reducing expenses and those types of things actually didn't happen and we saw a small positive. But the the, the number is it's less than 10, um, you know, and you see it, it comes through the, um, the expense results as a positive and, and a negative this quarter. So I don't, I don't see this necessarily reoccurring next year. We set the plan for expenses. 
um, the growth in uh, VNB in in Asia from the businesses is is largely consistent with the the growth we'd expect to drive a 15% uh, earnings growth from from Asia. Uh, in fact, there was a headwind, uh, a small headwind in the 10% related to equity markets coming down. So overall, I'd say it's uh, uh, that that kind of gives you the perspective of where that lies, Darko. And I just want to flush out uh, Asia a little more in terms of we all know that the, the Philippines has had a bit of a, a, a difficult run with COVID. You've done some work there on on digital. So are we to expect that that should bounce back and uh, and perhaps have better than 10% EPIF growth for the whole segment into 2021? I'll turn that to Leo. Yeah, good, um, good morning, Darko, it's Leo here. So, you know, in the Philippines, um, what we've seen, as you can see from the, the numbers, is uh, that sales were, were in fact down about 25% uh, from last year this quarter. Um, but if you look at sales this quarter compared to prior, we, we, um, we basically doubled sales compared to Q2. Um, the context, as you've mentioned, is a very severe situation from a COVID-19 standpoint with uh, probably one of the worst uh, health crises in Asia and also one of the strictest um, movement restriction environment uh, in Asia as well. And so, you know, that's had material impact uh, on sales, especially in a market where um, if you look at our agency model and the culture, it's uh, very much based on, on relationships and human interactions. So, you know, what you've seen over the course of the last quarter, the bounce back that we've had um, is uh, very much driven by a lot of actions we've taken because the, the broad environment is, is pretty much the same. Uh, we've driven uh, a lot of um, uh, digital uh, rollout. Uh, Dean mentioned a few of them. So, for example, we've got uh, digital point-of-sales capability uh, across the market. We've also rolled out uh, virtual capabilities on top of digital point-of-sales. So that means you can basically do things remotely with uh, digital signatures and so on. Uh, we've also um, uh, raised our medical limits uh, through capabilities like uh, Rome, the, the remote medical exams that uh, Dean was talking about. And then we've also uh, really dialed up our reach out to clients um, with things like webinars, which, you know, one of the positive byproducts of this whole thing is, is with webinars, we're actually reaching an order of magnitude more clients in things like, uh, like education events. So there's been, there's been a lot of activity to overcome these movement restrictions. That's creating some of this momentum. Uh, more tangibly, uh, at, a, at an underlying activity level, what we're seeing is that um, the activity ratio of our advisors is almost back to pre-crisis level, but we are seeing lower policy size. And, you know, in my mind, that's reflecting the economic challenges of the markets. You've got significant unemployment. Um, you've got, uh, you know, a lot of people across the Philippines who have lost their jobs uh, or have reduced um, uh, discretionary spend capabilities. And so while, while we expect to see a continued uh, rebound of our activities in the Philippines, uh, we do expect significant headwind from, from the economic situation and then also just the uncertainty with regards to uh, future waves of COVID-19. 
um, uh, the, the situation hasn't really uh, improved and, uh, you know, different parts of the Philippines keep going back and forth between severe lockdown and slightly less severe lockdown. We don't anticipate that to get much better over the next uh, couple of quarters. So we're optimistic about our own business momentum, but at the same time, uh, we're just realistic about the significant headwinds there uh, in terms of the, the continued economic volatility and, and COVID-19 waves. And, and just a point of clarification, the Philippines, when you make sales there, are they predominantly new business gains? Yeah, yeah, there's, uh, there's material new business gains with these sales, correct. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Uh, Darko, just quickly, Kevin, I think I might have said B&B once by accident there. So it's 10% expected, expected profit growth from the businesses, 4% when you include the regional office, just to make sure it's clear for everybody. Thank you. Your next question is from the line of Doug Young with the Jardis Capital Markets. Good morning. Um, a big picture, um, and maybe this is for, for Kevin. I mean, you've, there's a laundry list of things that, that moved for you and, and against you, I guess, in the quarter. And I'm not talking, and I'm talking from an underlying earnings perspective, not including ACMA. And so I'm just trying to get a sense of was there anything unusual this quarter that really leaned in your favor from, you know, investment gains or higher than, or higher than normal uh, favorable policyholder behavior, expenses? Things that items that may or may not recur. I just try to get a sense of when I look at the quarter, is there anything really abnormal leaning one way or another? Yeah, thanks, Doug. When you look at the notable items, uh, you can see that they were $35 million for the quarter. And I think this is a good place to look for those sorts of unusual things. Um, from a notable items basis, that, that's, that's right on our eight-quarter rolling average. So I, I think it's roughly where you'd expect to be. It's higher from morbidity this quarter, obviously at 65, and we had the uh, mortality hit, but on average it's, it's you know, right where we've been the last eight quarters. And, you know, we had a tailwind last year from taxes that didn't reoccur this year. So uh, I think as I look at it, you know, there's not um, a lot of noise per se in, in the results. You've got a very sort of clean thing that, that there wasn't a lot of one-time items here. The improvement in morbidity, as we've talked about, is, uh, you know, there's obviously some uncertainty whether it will continue to be as strong as it was this quarter, but overall it was a, a good quarter. Okay. Perfect. And then just uh, on to U.S. enforced management, I know, Dean, I've asked you this before. Um, it's another third quarter that's gone by, and, and there's a fairly sizable hit uh, from an ACMA perspective. You know, I look the last three years, and, and you've lost money on this business from a, from a net perspective. Um, and probably happens again uh, this year as well. And so I'm just trying to get a sense of, you know, why keep the business? And I, and I get you don't need the capital, um, but it's a non-core business, causes a lot of noise. Just wanted to get another sense of, of your outlook for this business and plans for the business. Yeah, thanks, Doug. Um, you know, I, I would say that uh, the work that we continue to do with the enforced management business in the United States, which includes, you know, renewing reinsurance treaties, uh, restructuring the AXXX structure as we did this quarter, strengthening reserves for lapse, et cetera, are things that have to get done whether we own the business or others own it. So 
our view has been, you know, we need to optimize this business for, for all the different dimensions, expenses, capital, cash generation, tax, the role of reinsurance, and, of course, being there for clients. And, you know, I, our focus has been, you know, how do we – we have to deal with all the issues I just mentioned, but how do we also um, make it a better business and improve it? And so there's been a lot of progress. We've dealt – you know, we've talked before about some of the work we've done on um, – stranger-owned life insurance cases, Stoli cases, and we've made some great progress there. We've made good progress on expenses and so on. All the other issues that, as you point out, have been headwinds are headwinds that we would somebody would have to have dealt with one way or the other. Um, so that's that's how we're thinking about it, and we'll continue to optimize it. And in that sense, that's the way we are thinking about our UK business as well, which is also closed, but you know, lots of um, continue to see opportunity to optimize it. And, and are you done? Like, is, is most of the big heavy lifting done? Or are you halfway through? Or are we in the fifth inning, sixth inning? Just trying to get a sense. Doug, we're never done. <laughs> we're never done. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, would, I would just say, um, as we look ahead, we continue to see opportunities to, to optimize these closed block businesses. OK, thank you. Your next question is from the line of David Motomaden with Evercore. Hi, good morning. Um, I, I just have a question for Dan on the stop-loss business in the U.S. and the competitive environment there. Um, there have been a number of, of new entrants or planned new entrants in the market, uh, including a Swiss Re and Google partnership, um, and, and Zurich has also said they want to enter that business. Um, I guess... You know, I, you know, you guys have been at it for a while. People come and go in the market, but you know, what, what's your view on the competitive nature of of the market uh, in the stop loss business specifically, uh, given these new entrants, and and how does that impact your view of of, of your margin goals? Sure, it, it, it's always been a highly competitive business, and as you noted, uh, competitors do come and go, in, including Go. We've seen some leave the market. Uh, you know, it's obviously a very attractive business, so it's attracting uh, interest at all times. What I would say about the way we think about it is it, it's a business that is highly dependent on the skills uh, of the of the people, the expertise. And that's really what the brokers, consultants, and employers are looking for is a really excellent partner uh, with people who really understand the business and help and can help them manage through it. So we believe we've got the best team. We have the largest team in the industry. We're the largest independent player, and we back that up with the best talent, and that will continue to be our differentiation. At the same time, it is our intent to continue to expand the business to differentiate beyond core stop loss by helping our employer clients manage uh, claims and care more effectively. Uh, so look uh, for more from us on that in the future. We already have good clinical capabilities in place, but we hope to to grow that uh, over time. And then just as far as the current environment, it's you know remaining competitive but reasonably rational. And as far as the new entrants, you know those are planned entrants. Uh, we haven't really seen them in the market yet at this point. Okay, great. That that's that's helpful. Um, 
and and then if I could just shift to to Asia and just a question for Leo on the international hub sales. So, you know, another strong result this quarter, and that contributed to a smaller new business drag and and helped total Asia sales stay flat. Uh, I know last quarter there was some of the existing pipeline coming through. Uh, converting to sales, so I'm I'm just wondering if you could talk about the dynamics of this quarter, and specifically if you've been able to start replenishing that pipeline, so we don't see a big drop off in sales at some point once once the pipeline's exhausted. Thanks, uh, David. Uh, good morning. Um, so. Um, with uh, with international uh, sales um, and international hubs in general, um, you know you'll recall that uh, we uh, we made it a strategic priority for us uh, in Asia. Uh, in general, we see um, we see strong demand uh, in Asia for high net worth, ultra high net worth estate planning and you know tax planning uh, type of solutions. Um, and uh, you know as a result, we've made uh, a number of big investments. Uh, in this business, we did the restructuring, creating international hubs. Um, we've we've been investing in the technology. We launched a new platform with new client portal, new broker portal. We've been innovating the the products and so on. Uh, so we think you know all of that is helping with the momentum of our business in uh, in a market that's uh, you know that's quite competitive. And you know in our view, that's explaining some of the the continued success of that business. Uh, at the same time, obviously, we've got COVID-19, and I mentioned, uh, you know, last quarter, we typically have a sales cycle of about six to 12 months in this business. And so, uh, as of Q2, I was describing, you know, the strong results and saying that, um, you know, those were probably sales that started somewhere in 2019 or, or early 2020. Um, that, that's still the pattern for us, and so. If you think about our sales in Q3, a lot of these would have started maybe late 2019 or, or sometime, you know, in, in the start of the COVID waves uh, this year. And as a result, if you think about our sales this quarter, they're, they're still strong compared to last year, but they're down compared to Q2. And uh, that, in our mind, uh, reflects uh, some of the, the headwinds uh, related to COVID-19 and the challenges with travel restrictions and quarantine. And so if you think about sales in this market going forward, uh, we do feel very good about our competitive position vis-a-vis -vis, uh, other insurance companies, given all of the investments we've made and the capabilities we've built that I've described. But if you think about the pipeline at the level of brokers, um, we do think that that is uh, shrinking and that um, you know, as we think about the next couple of quarters, you're basically going to see pipeline that started uh, after the, the start of COVID-19 in Asia in, you know, in the, the February-March timeframe. Uh, so, uh, so we've got these two offsetting aspects that we're expecting, strong competitive capabilities on our side, but um, uh, uh, smaller pipeline with brokers as a result of um, restrict, you know, travel restrictions and quarantines. Okay, great. That, that's helpful. And if I could just follow up. So is this, is this business, I would think it's kind of hard to do on a virtual basis, but is, is that something that you guys are, are exploring? Um, because I know that low interest rates helps this business just from a premium financing standpoint, which I, which I understand is, is, is a bigger component in, in some of the high net worth sales. But, you know, are you guys, are you guys exploring maybe more virtual 
um, sales, or, or are there certain regulations that would prevent you from completing a, a virtual sale? So, um, uh, you know, I think there's a couple of aspects to this. One is um, these are heavy planning-oriented sales, and um, uh, given the nature of the transactions, they are very advice-intensive. They tend to be face-to-face -face type of interactions. Uh, so that's one aspect of just so the, how the business is transacted. Uh, that said, we are evolving to reflect uh, the current environment, and we can conduct um, some of these um, uh, transactions remotely. And so we have rolled out capabilities, uh, including e-signature and uh, DocuSign, uh, to enable uh, remote, uh, remote sales of this business. Uh, but just given the nature of, uh, of the transactions, we still find that most clients, most brokers want to conduct this business face-to-face. -face. That, that could evolve if, you know, the pressures of travel restrictions just continue, uh, but it's, uh, it's mostly uh, the, the nature of it today. Got it. Thank you. That makes sense. Your next question is from the line of Paul Holden with CIBC. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, two questions. I want to go back to the uh, discussion on experience and Canada group benefits, and I guess disability in particular. So it was positive this quarter, but was a source of negative experience last quarter. So I guess I want to better understand what's creating that volatility and what that might mean for future results, if we can make any uh, inferences. Uh, Jacques, we'll uh, turn that question to you. Thank you, Kevin, and, and Paul, thank you for your question. So indeed, if you look at Q3 this year versus Q3 last year, we had a very good improvement in our experience. It is uh, driven predominantly by uh, disability and, and group benefits. So I'll, I'll take you back perhaps quickly, Paul. There are three key levers here that are important in, in this business. Uh, number one is what we call incidents, but it's really just the volume of cases that we get. Uh, the second one is recovery, so it's how quickly, how many people we get back to, to work from disability. And, and last is, is pricing, and, and you've heard me talk about that before. We recognize uh, early on last year, actually, that this business needed repriced, to be repriced, and we did that. So if you, if you compare Q3 this year to Q3 last year, the, the main driver of it, or the largest driver of it, is the volume. It's the incidence. And we, we're not quite sure, Paul, frankly, whether it's, it's a one data point or, or the start of a new trend. It's kind of a tough one to call. Uh, as you know, we have had over the last few years a growing incidence level and, and mental health, and Dean referred to that in his remarks as being a very important driver. So, so we have positive experience or a favorable experience on, on incidents. Uh, we're watching that closely, as you can imagine, to see whether it continues or not. Uh, but that's really what is the, uh, the main driver for the, the Delta versus last year. Got it. That's helpful. Thank you. And continuing with the group business, and this question applies to both uh, Canada and U.S., Q4 tends to be the peak quarter for, uh, for sales. Just, 
you know, that, that's a piece of the business that's been impacted by COVID. It seems like there's less less transaction activity taking place in, in, in group across the industry. So would be helpful to get a view on what you're thinking, what the pipeline looks like for uh, Q4 sales, given the historical importance of that quarter for gaining new uh, new business. Well, it's Dean. I'll just jump in here and say we, as you know, we tend not to give forecasts looking forward for, for sales numbers. I think uh, Dan uh, described uh, some pretty good sales momentum in the third quarter. You saw that in the numbers. Um, but I, I would prefer that we not get into the business of projecting sales forward. I, it's, it's not typically how we've done it. So Maybe we can talk a little bit about the, the dynamics uh, going into the quarter, again, with COVID being somewhat disruptive to that, uh, to that market. Dan, do you want to just make some overall comments on how clients are thinking about this? Because obviously any, any actions um, that we saw in the third quarter were instigated, any sales activity were driven by client needs first and foremost. Yeah, I think it's um, our sales organization has really done a great job at adapting to this environment. We went uh, 100% virtual literally overnight. Uh, and as you saw, our third quarter results were quite strong, overall up 24% uh, and up 40% in our group businesses, uh, up also in our stop-loss business. Uh, so that's in, you know, reflective of their ability to react very well to this environment and to do this, conduct the sales process and maybe more importantly, the entire case installation and enrollment process, uh, 100% virtually and very effectively. And that's what clients are looking for right now. Uh, it is true that there are fewer clients, uh, so far during this pandemic in the marketplace that, you know, uh, proposal activity is down across the industry, but our close ratios have been excellent because clients are coming to us for those digital and virtual capabilities and our ability to serve their needs, uh, you know, in this unique way at this time. Uh, so, you know, again, I, as Dean said, we wouldn't give forward-looking information, uh, but we would certainly think that those capabilities will continue to be attractive in this environment. Got it. That's helpful. Thank you. Your next question is from the line of Nigel DeSouza with Veritas Investment Research. Uh, thank you. Good morning. Uh, I had a two-part question on how to think through the impact or the potential impact uh, from a low-rate environment. Uh, so the first part is when I look at earnings on surplus, that was uh, negatively impacted this quarter from lower investment income. So is that mainly just quarterly noise that comes from market volatility, or is that reflective of uh, being in a low-yield environment? In other words, should we think of that as a one-off, or do you expect going forward that uh, a lower for longer yield environment will put some pressure on investment income and earnings on surplus? It's Kevin, Nigel. You're, you're absolutely right. We had a lower earnings in surplus, just under $100 million, and it did reflect the, the lower yield. The AFS gains we had were $26 million, and so there is some volatility that comes through in AFS, but we were definitely seeing as we've, you know, uh, realigned the portfolio the last few years that uh, we're getting lower investment income. It's one of the reasons I talked about the potential of leveraging SLC, which operates really well in a low-yield environment and could potentially add some yield to the surplus, but 
the big chunk of what you saw this quarter was the uh, the lower yield on our current invested assets. Um, we were lower on AFS compared to Q3 last year, but I think the the, the biggest piece is that that sort of lower yield we're getting on on our invested assets. Okay, that's helpful. And if I could pivot off of that and, and think about the the product side and annuities business. Uh, so in Canada, you know, annuity premiums were, were strong this quarter. But if we look ahead, uh, could you speak to the challenges you're potentially seeing for annuities as as positioning it as an attractive product in a low yield environment? And you've already talked a bit on how you're looking to pick up yield on the asset side. Is that are those you know kind of hand in hand there where you're trying to um, generate yield on the asset side, but also kind of support the annuity uh, returns to make them attractive? Jacques, why don't you take that? Yeah. So. Are you focusing, Nigel, on the uh, group side of the business or the retail side of the business? Uh, if it's possible to chat, uh, to be any comment on both would be helpful, I think. Sure. Okay. Uh, well, let me start. You know, Dean and Kevin both highlighted in their opening remarks uh, the largest annuity transaction that we had in uh, 1.1 billion in the quarter. As you can imagine, we're quite pleased with that. This is a business, although that can be lumpy and there's seasonality to it. But w what I would say, it's, it's a little bit similar to what Dan said on stop loss, is you know we are the market leader in that uh, business. We've been for a number of years. Uh, we have a very, very strong team uh, in place. Uh, we've done some of the most complex and innovative transactions. So what that does mean is that you know we tend to pretty well see all the at-bats, if I can say that, and, and exercise quite a bit of discipline on, you know, and be selective on where we want to take a run at it or not. Uh, the pipeline, I mean, you, you might think that, you know, low interest rates is having an impact there, but what tends to happen, Nigel, is companies that uh, annuitize liabilities tend to start by being on what I would describe a, a de-risking path for a while. And what they'll do is they'll they'll move assets from what I would call growth assets to matching assets, right? So they tend to to be immunized because as rates go down, yes, the liabilities go up, but so so does the asset portfolio. And the real driver of what's happening in in that market is really the funded ratio, so the ratio of assets to liabilities. So I, I'd say that. Um, that's one dynamic for those employers, by the way, or plant sponsors that may have retained growth assets while they ended up being hurt earlier in the year when COVID hit. But as you know, markets have, have recovered, so there's still some, some good opportunities. So if you look year to date, that market so far is about the same size as it was in 2019. So we... As I said, we, we think we're well positioned. We've got a great team. Uh, we've identified this, if you remember, from Investor Day last year as a growth engine for us, you know, this market. Certainly, Nigel, if you compare it to U.S. and U.K., is much less mature. There's a lot of runway, and, and we think that uh, companies that are interested in, in uh, de-risking their pension plans will continue to do so. You know, on the on the retail side, it's uh, you know it's a different dynamic. Of course, it's uh, you know clients are um, you know coming up. Certainly, if you if you think of the accumulation phase and then people going into the accumulation, so there's more and more assets. You know, uh, looking for how to decumulate and and 
annuities are an unimportant part of that. They usually uh, fit as part of a broader set of solutions. Uh, we're continuing to see good numbers there. Uh, it's a business that is quite competitive. It's very rate uh, dependent, so the ability to win or not is, uh, is very de dependent on uh, how competitive are your prices. But it's an important area for us, and, and we continue to focus on it. That's that really help? helpful. Yeah, that's really helpful, caller. Thank you. Your next question is from the line of Tom McKinnon with BMO Capital. Yeah, thanks. Uh, good morning. I uh, want to uh, talk a little bit more about uh, the earnings on the surplus and this leveraging of SLC's capabilities. Uh, Kevin, this is the lowest we've seen uh, um, earnings on surplus probably for like uh, three years. This might be the lowest quarter we've seen for earnings on surplus here. So um, maybe how, as you leverage SLC's capabilities, uh, um, how should we be looking at earnings on surplus going forward? Um, uh, how much of the surplus assets does SLC manage now, and how much more are they going to manage going forward with this uh, leveraging you're talking about? And if I look at SLC, it's largely real estate and some private debt and infrastructure. Does that mean you'll be bringing um, more real estate into the surplus portfolio? And uh, is there any talk about having SLC manage any of the assets that back liabilities as well? And, and I have a follow-up after that. Thanks. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Tom. Well, SLC manages a hundred percent of the assets in the in the surplus account, uh, but as you know, there's 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 a mixture of assets there. It's it's more related to some of the new capabilities we're, we're bringing in. Um, we will see uh, opportunities to do seed investments inside of SLC, and we've talked about that in the past. But there's also abilities to look at other sort of non-fixed income pieces that we could put into surplus. We'll we'll do that over a over a number of years, right, on a, on a fairly steady basis. So you'll see it as it as it emerges. Um, it will create some volatility for surplus earnings because of uh, uh, the difference in those those investments as we do it, and we'll be kind of mindful of that. Um, it as you do, as you know, this is lower, and it's definitely related to the yields and the ability to do AFS gains than it's been in the past. I, I do think that if you were thinking about a range, um, you know. We can we can continue to grow over a hundred, um, bringing in some of these additional assets over time that will build up that income. Okay, just but it will add some, it will it, it will add some volatility. Yeah. So following on that, you said you're going to leverage their capabilities, but they're already managing 100% of the assets. So when you say leverage, so leverage their yeah, leverage the capabilities of the new okay. the, the new the new businesses we bought. So infrared um, and. Uh, uh, Crescent, for example, but also doing some additional things with BGO as BGO expands its capabilities. Okay. Is there any talk about having SLC, uh, those capabilities work their way into the uh, assets that back uh, your liabilities? Um, are you going to try to work to uh, bring in some more of those capabilities into those assets? So they do manage some assets already that back liabilities, and so you can think about uh, SLC broadly supporting both the liabilities when it meets the the investment uh, objectives of the uh, and the cash flow needs of the policies, but also supporting surplus. Okay, so I take it that the real estate that's on the books is largely SLC managed. Is that that's is that that's right? All uh, BGO would manage all of the real estate. And it, as you kind of crank up SLC's capabilities and earnings on surplus, are you trying to crank up their capabilities for the uh, assets that back liabilities as well? 
we would be using them for we'll use the the new asset classes when when it's appropriate to support liabilities if it if it matches the the needs of the of the um of the particular segment and we'll also use it in surplus so yeah tom we would use it in both liabilities and in the surplus segment and in fact we've got we are already using as you would know real estate backing liabilities as an example mm -hmm. okay so just to close that it sounds like earnings on surplus could get uh, bigger, but uh, better, but there could be more volatility associated with this uh, new initiative. Yeah, I, that, that's that's where I would see it, and it would happen over time. Okay, thanks. And then uh, the second question is really uh, maybe for Dean. Uh, you've, I think that you've sort of filled in what you need now with SLC, as far as I can uh, gather, uh, with uh, you know with Crescent, and then getting infrared earlier. So uh, um, I would say. Uh, you know, maybe SLC, uh, you're, you're finished with building out SLC. Um, you know, what are your next steps now? You've got, uh, you always generate good excess capital. You've got fairly low leverage. You still have, uh, um, you know, you, you still have ample excess capital. What, um, you know, what are you looking at? What are your cap what kind of capabilities do you think you would need to fill? Um, where do you see opportunities? Yeah, thanks, Tom. Um, so you're right, as Steve Peacher said uh, when we announced the Crescent acquisition that, uh, you know, we've, we've filled in the key pieces to the puzzle and we've got really now a, a, a really compelling set of offerings to clients in this low for longer, lower for longer world within SLC. And so we'll pause on, on M&A and SLC, on, on sizable M&A. We'll take a pause and um, and do as much as we can to leverage what we've put together and to grow it. Um, when we look outside of the asset management pillar, and by the way, we I should also say that you're not likely to see us acquire uh, with MFS. MFS is at scale already. We've got um, terrific capabilities across equities and fixed income, across retail and institutional, across geographies around the world. And in a world that's consolidating asset management firms, uh, which, as you know, tends to put money in motion uh, when firms combine, we, you know, one of the things that MFS has been focused on is is trying to be a net beneficiary of that money in motion. And in fact, that's that's in part what's been driving some of the growth in, in sales uh, in MFS. So you're not likely to see us acquire there. When we look at Asia, uh, our story continues to be one of looking for opportunities across all of our markets in Asia and across different distribution channels. So we did the, the bank deal with TP Bank at the start of this year in Vietnam. That's gone extremely well. It's actually ahead, running ahead of our plans. Um, they're a very well-run bank, and they've, you know, it's, it's, the partnership is off to a great start. So can we find more banca deals across Asia? Could we buy larger percentages of the businesses we're already in with JV partners? Could we buy other insurance companies or asset management businesses in Asia uh, to, to kind of um, uh, complement what we already have on the ground? So that's a set of opportunities. And then Dan talked about in the U.S. looking for opportunities to extend our capabilities in stop loss to help employers uh, manage health claims to a, a better extent and um, we already have uh, some of those capabilities but we look for, for other opportunities there and in the group business again adjacent capabilities the 
acquisition of Maxwell Health two years ago has proven in hindsight uh, to be um, very valuable in this COVID world as we do enrollments virtually. And Dan talked about the impact that's had on our sales. So we'll continue to look for opportunities in the United States to extend uh, what we do both in group benefits and in stop loss. And then here in Canada, you saw us acquire um, a, uh, a stake in Dialog, uh, the leading uh, virtual healthcare provider to, to uh, you know, integrate that with our Lumino Health platform. That's gone extremely well. We've signed up um, hundreds of thousands of Canadians onto that platform. Just to, you know, again, we got lucky on timing because um, uh, we did it in the middle of, uh, of the second quarter when COVID was really getting going, and that's proven to be very valuable for our clients. So um, I'll stop there. That kind of takes you around the pillars, gives you a sense of the kinds of things we're looking at. Okay, thanks for the color. Your next question is from the line of Mario Mandanka of TD Security. Good morning. I see that we're over, so I'll try to be quick. Uh, the growth in expected profit in both Canada and the U.S. has been running fairly hot over the last few quarters. Uh, in the U.S., it's been the last two quarters. When I look at businesses like this and I see growth like that, I, I'm trying to disaggregate the growth into the two, two broad points. One is just your organic growth in, in the business itself, growing the assets, growing the in-force. And then secondarily, all the management actions that go along with that, things like pricing and expenses, can you help me make that disaggregation uh, in expected profit growth in Canada and the U.S., the, the more normal business versus all the other stuff you're doing? So, Mario, I'll turn it to, to, to Jacques and then Dan, and I, I will we'll add just one thing as, as, I, as I do that. The, if you look at the growth, there is a component that's related to expense uh, reductions as well, and uh, that roughly runs probably about half for both of them. But I'll, I'll pass it over to them to add some more color to that. Yeah, thank, thank you, Kevin, and, and thanks, Mario. And I'll try to be quick, but it's, it's in line with what Kevin just said. So first of all, you know, we, we're quite pleased at 13%. And if you go back, you, you'll see that it's quite a number of quarters now. It's pretty well seven quarters in a row that we're growing expected profit quite nicely. But what's happening in Canada, we, which we're quite pleased about, is it's actually happening across all of our businesses. So it's not, you know, one business or two pulling pulling the rest. And, and it's a lot uh, of things like, you know, I talked about Design Benefit Solutions, SLGI has got momentum now and, and growing earnings nicely and, and Ella and all the stuff that we're doing in digital. But to, to come back to your specific question, it, it's pretty well in line with what Kevin just said. So you can think of it as half of it is, is coming from this sort of fundamental business growth and half of it is is the real expense discipline that we've been applying for the for the past couple of years and and you know we've we've done that of course at the same time as freeing up uh, dollars to continue to invest in our strategic growth areas but but think of it as about half and half and Mario Dan over to you Yep thanks Jock and um in the U.S., the biggest contributors to expected profit growth right now have been our stop-loss business and full scope. So stop-loss is, you know, adding to that in every dimension, uh, strong margins, good renewals, and, of course, substantial top-line growth. Our full-scope business is now making a nice contribution as well, particularly as full-scope has expanded into new product lines. And then in our group business, we should start to see bigger contributions to expected profit in the future as we continue to manage down the expenses uh, and build the scale in that business. 
this is just to put a final um, point on this. If half is expense, half is business growth, and I and I let's say I start off with the notion that I believe business growth can continue um, at at its current pace. It was it fair to say that eventually the expense benefits start to taper off uh, over the next few quarters or year or so. Maris, Kevin, I, I think that's right. I think you'd say that um, we still have some room on expense discipline and those types of things, but you know over time as you uh, work your way through that, that that slows down a bit. And I, I was saying it was half in total across the both. The U.S. is a little bit less than half, but if you looked across the both, it's about half in total. That makes sense. Thank you. Your next question is from the line of Hump Freely with Dowling and Partners. Good morning, and thank you for taking my questions. Uh, just a couple questions uh, to Dan. Um, looking at the the, um, the top line for for group benefits uh, for group benefits in the U.S., uh, I understand what you kind of laid out in terms of your kind of virtual capability and and how you're able to to close um, transactions, but. Do you see yourself uh, as kind of in terms of that uh, offering is somewhat unique in the marketplace? Because definitely looking across the board, the, the U.S. group insurance players have seen kind of top-line pressure and much weaker sales than what uh, Sun Life has been able to, to deliver. Are you seeing kind of something that is unique to Sun Life? Well, thanks, Humphrey. You know, I think we do. Um, obviously not completely unique, but uh, as you pointed out, many of our competitors saw significant decreases in sales in the third quarter, and we saw a significant increase. So I think our digital capabilities are meaningfully differentiated at this point, and they're, uh, they're across a variety uh, of areas. You heard Dean mention Maxwell. That's certainly helping us. The enrollment in Maxwell has grown from 12,000 employee lives to about 30,000 during the year. Uh, we've done 500 virtual enrollment meetings, which is 100% of them in the in the recent months. Uh, we've introduced a variety of new capabilities for doing uh, enrollment meetings uh, across different platforms, uh, including one-on-one -on -one meetings as well as uh, group meetings and a number of other digital capabilities. So I think the broker community, which represents the employers, has come to see us as a good home uh, in this environment, a good place, uh, a company that can deliver those kinds of services. Uh, so I think we do, we have developed some differentiation during this period of time uh, on digital and virtual, uh, but lots of opportunity to grow that in the future. And how does that, like in terms of the marketplace, kind of given the slowdown in in, in other kind of RP, RPF, has your how's your persistency trend uh, kind of over this period? Yeah, our persistency has improved, as I think it has for many, because uh, some employers have decided to defer on looking for new benefits partners during this period of time. So our pers persistency uh, is is definitely up a bit. Uh, and then just one uh, follow-up question. I think uh, in Dean's remark, you talked about from an MA perspective uh, in kind of U.S. group benefits, you're looking potentially maybe adding some uh, complementary capabilities to stop loss. Like given your, your book of business is, is pretty established and, 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 and a major player in the marketplace, what other capabilities would you look to add for stop loss? Yeah, I mean, I can't get overly specific, but I, what I would say is we think of stop loss really as part of the overall health insurance ecosystem in the U.S. 
And we are a partner now to uh, employers representing about 5 million uh, employee lives in the U.S. Uh, for their self-insured health plans. And historically, our involvement in those health plans was primarily uh, high-claim risk protection. We've been expanding that out into helping them and their employees manage care, navigate difficult situations. And we do have a program called Clinical 360, which already does some really quite effective and, and helpful things in, in that uh, space. But we'd like to expand that more. We'd like to step further into the healthcare space, uh, providing care management, navigation uh, type services uh, to the members we work with who are facing serious illnesses because we think there's a real win-win there for everybody. Uh, we can help people get better outcomes uh, and we can help employers manage their cost profile at the same time because better outcomes almost always are less expensive. So it's more adjacent features as opposed to looking to add more scale, correct? That's, I, I, would th I think that's the right way to think about it because we have a lot of scale. Uh, we're the largest, in the, uh, largest independent stop-loss carrier, and our sales are far above anybody else's each year. So we are continuing to build scale organically. Uh, what we'd like to do is add capabilities uh, which would further differentiate us in the market. That's helpful. Thank you. At this time, we have no further questions. I will turn things back to Ms. Chalmers for closing remarks. Thank you, Stephanie. And I would like to thank all of our participants today. And if there are any additional questions, we will be available after the call. Should you wish to listen to the recording of this call, it will be available on our website later this afternoon. Thank you, and have a good day. This concludes today's call. Thank you for participating. You may now disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.